when you're a young, nervous civilization about to send out its first deep space probe, you want to make sure whoever finds it is going to want to be your friend. And the best way to do that is to send a mixtape. Earth's Mixtape is the podcast where we dive into the contents of the Voyager Golden Record. One song at a time, one picture at a time, one whale song at a time. Welcome to Earth's Mixtape. I'm Mike Dunlavey, and with me as always is... Roby Austin. And... Hannah Ayler. And this is basically an episode zero, where we're going to talk about what the podcast is going to be, and we're going to give a little bit of history about what the Voyager Golden Record actually is and how it was ended up being put out into space. You know the history? Oh, geez, I should have done homework. I did homework for everybody. Oh, thanks. And most of this homework came from a book called Murmurs of Earth, which was written by Carl Sagan, Frank Drake, Andrian, Timothy Ferris, John Lumberg, and Linda Saltzman Sagan. Published by Ballantine Books, available as an ebook through your favorite ebook store. Wow, that's a long list of authors. Are you sponsored for that? I'm hoping we can get sponsorship for that. <laughs> Basically, the, that list of authors is the list of people who were mostly responsible for putting the Golden Record together, and we'll be getting into them as the episodes go along. So now I'm going to launch into the story of the Voyager Golden Record. In 1977, NASA launched two probes to explore the outer planets of our solar system. The first Voyager probe to launch, Voyager 2, went up on August 20th, and the second, Voyager 1, launched two weeks later on September 5th. Wait, wait, wait. They launched Voyager 2 before Voyager 1? They launched Voyager 2 before Voyager 1 because of weird space things Voyager 1 would get to Jupiter first. Okay, uh, you're the astronomer among us, Hannah. Weird space thing sounds legit to me. <laughs> I'm content with that explanation. Yeah, so, so they numbered them by who would get, which one would get to the planets first rather than which would launch first. Oh, I don't like that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with Hannah on this one, I think. Uh, What's so special about Jupiter? Uh, well, it's the biggest planet of the solar system. Oh, really? Thanks, Mike. Hannah is our resident astronomer, so uh, it's good that we keep her up to date on these things. And we just write that down. Uh, so these Voyager probes are going up, as I said, in August and September of 1977. Some NASA folks, led for the most part by Carl Sagan, figured that once the probe did all of their solar system business, taking pictures, taking readings from these outer planets, that it would then fly out of the solar system to parts unknown, planets unknown, who knows where unknown? I assume they know, but I don't. Uh, and it went one day may be met by outer space people or OSPs. This is just a technical question, but was Carl Sagan actually a NASA employee? I believe he was part of NASA, yes. That's not the same thing as saying, sure, he was 100% commander of mission XYZ. So this is an interesting point. It really does seem like Sagan and his colleagues took this project on themselves. Right. Like, like they, they decided that we should put this record of humanity. They did it very quietly. They basically decided in March of 77 that they were going to do this. Okay. So they decided in March of 77, they decided that in August and September, they would put an indelible record of all humanity for all time, for all creatures, all possible alien, sorry, outer space people. OSPs. Thank you. That's ambitious. I read on Wikipedia, so this is totally 100% true. Absolutely. That it took them over a year to decide what was going to go on the record. But again... Wikipedia, 100% true. Murmurs of Earth did give the impression that they started this in about March. Or maybe it was at March they got the go-ahead from NASA to do it. 
but they didn't really start collecting things until March. Okay. I'll trust you. So I think I'm going to trust both of you because I don't think NASA makes decisions quickly. I mean, I have a limited understanding of how enormous bureaucracies work, but I I think that NASA in the 70s was not a turn-on-a-dime organization. So surely for these dudes to get the go-ahead in March, they would have had to have asked a gazillion years earlier. That makes sense to me. The way I was imagining it, and I have no backup from this, but how I was imagining it is that Sagan and Co., all of NASA was very busy because they were launching these deep space probes at the end of summer. Mm-hmm. And apparently a couple people had some time on their hands and said, hey, we're going to put a record together. Could we go do that? And NASA said, yeah, sure, we're busy. Go do that. All right. Fair enough. And like I said, they, they, they kept it really quiet. They, they put a lot of effort into making sure as few people knew about it as possible. I think for the purpose of getting it done on time. If it became widely known that people were putting together this record of all humanity, all humanity might want more of a say in it. And I think that's a fair point, which we will presumably get to in a little while. It is definitely a fair point, but I think with the the restricted time scale they were working on, it wasn't an unreasonable. And as we'll get into, they did reach out to a lot of people with various expertise. Mm-hmm. Who they chose. Who they chose, yes. <laughs> and probably knew about through their circles. Yes. Uh, So the plan was that they would make a collection of music, photos, greetings, and basic audio samples from the Earth. They would put it on a golden record, which was actually a golden-coated copper record. So it was a copper core with gold coating that the grooves would be cut into. And they would make content decisions based on the fact that our science could form a basis for communication. So, all right. I have heard this argument in many different ways, that the most fundamental sciences, the things that no matter what cultural background you have, you will draw the same conclusions when presented with such and such evidence, or you will come to the same logical conclusion. I've heard this as like the universal way to communicate with anybody. But if if we were to try that with ourselves 600 years ago, it would fail miserably. So... Well, but if you're trying to do this with yourself from centuries ago, you're talking to a more primitive society that doesn't have the level of science you are currently operating at. If a society from 600 years ago put their science together to talk to us, it might go a little better. And I think the idea is that the OSPs would be more technologically advanced than us. I was making an argument more about the fallacy of assuming that this is universally communicating itself. Like the fact that that we have the scientific method, although at the moment, it really does seem like the very best way to understand the physical world. That doesn't mean that there isn't something better. Sure. So going with the best you got isn't a bad plan. This is true, and I'm not going to argue with it. It just it is like with the previous point about the dudes sending off uh, their own personal impression of the earth with the personal impression of a few of their best friends, if I can uh, summarize it in this unfair way. That sounds fair. <laughs> so, I, but I, I, yeah, so it, I think it follows along the same lines of hubris as that. I can get behind that. So as I said, uh, the different categories of content on the record would be music, photos, sounds of earth, and greetings. As for the music, on the record there is 90 minutes of music of about 27 different tracks. And they had two criteria for their choices. Uh, This is quoted from Murmurs of Earth. One, contributions from a wide range of cultures 
not just the cultures of the people involved in the project. And two, every selection should touch the heart as well as the mind. Wow. They were trying to get a sort of pan-cultural representation of the music. As we go on in the podcast and we look at each track one by one, we can d- make decisions on how successful they were with that. Uh, but the second criteria, I think, is the more interesting one. The Every selection should touch the heart as well as the mind. That seems very subjective, though. I quite agree. And, and I think that's what it is. Like, they're making their first criteria is objective. We're going to try to grab every culture that we can in the time we have allotted. But this subjective thing, this it seems like they're saying we're not going to choose music just for... Completeness. For completeness, for showing off, for, you know, this music has a mathematical structure to its composition that is might be pleasing to a scientifically-based OSP. But the touch the heart really is a... I can't see how that could be possibly be relevant to an OSP. Even nobody, it even differs among humans. Like something that touches one person's heart is meaningless to another. So how are you gonna then extrapolate that to oh, it touches a human heart, therefore it's gonna soften the hearts of these aliens and they're gonna love us? I don't, I don't know about that. Well, and the whole point of making someone a mixtape is so that they like you in the end. Right. That's what this is all about. Excellent point. I'm still stuck on the fact that the music isn't the same category as the sounds of Earth. Oh, oh yeah, no, sounds of Earth is something completely different. We're going to get to that. I, I'm aware, but I just I think it's absurd for an alien culture, or sorry, an OSP, to be introduced to. <laughs> yeah, I apologize. To be introduced to the idea of music as being something like a separate category from the sounds that we make here on Earth, because surely it falls into the general category of well, sounds Well, humans that we make. are so much more evolved than anything else <laughs> on the planet, so therefore we get our own... There is whale greetings on the record, just so you know. There oh, is whale song. They okay. did include a non-human contribution. Wow. And when we get to what the sounds of Earth are, you'll see, I think you would agree that they're a different category than music. Nope. I think I will agree that you could make a Venn diagram where there was another thing that you should give a name to, but I think that music is a sound of earth. I think that if you're going to call it sound of earth, uh, you should include music in it. Fair enough. I I have no comeback to that. I think Uh, you've convinced me. I'm convinced too, and we can keep battering on them because they are the ones who call the the sound montage the sounds of Earth. Thank you. And just to give you an idea, the people who took took lead on the music selection were um, Sagan and his wife, Linda, uh, Andrian and Timothy Ferris, um, and they took in outside suggestions from Jonathan Cott of Rolling Stone magazine. Robert E. Brown of the Center of World Music in Berkeley, and Alan Lomax, who is a famous ethnomusicologist. If you haven't heard of Alan Lomax, Google him now. Stop the podcast, Google Alan Lomax, listen to the streaming things from the American, uh, from the Smithsonian Institute. It's fantastic. And the fantastic. Library of Congress. I the think. Library right, of Congress. We're going to have to pause yeah, this yeah. so I can Google him. <laughs> and it was, it, they stated explicitly in Murmurs of Earth that Lomax recommended most of the music that is not in the, quote, Eastern or Western classical traditions. Okay. Must be Northern or Southern. <laughs> Excellent point. And also, if it's not in the classical tradition, what was the world music dude doing? He was doing classical? I, I assume he was also making contributions along those lines. It, it, it was most of the music, not in the Eastern or Western yeah. classical traditions. Once again, I think, I think we may, may not have fair representation based on that piece of information. But I, I will keep an open mind and, and uh, 
look forward to hearing all the tracks. We will hear all the tracks as the episodes go along. Each episode, we're going to talk about one or two tracks. And uh, yeah, we can decide as we go and in the end how successful they were. The next large section is a selection of photos, a total of 118 pictures that were chosen to explain and demonstrate our planet, our own personal biology, and our science. Fascinatingly enough, these were all chosen in about six weeks, which seems like a huge job. Taking lead on choosing these photos were uh, Frank Drake, Amal Shakarishi of the National Astronomy and Ionosphere Center, and Wendy Gradison of Cornell University. Technical question? Yeah. These went onto the record, so they were digitized somehow? They were digitized and put onto the record, and interestingly, Drake worked hard with a company called Colorado Video to turn these pictures into quote-unquote sound that could be encoded onto the record. They did fairly clever things in terms of resolution. According to Murmurs of Earth, the space on the record per picture was the equivalent of eight seconds of sound. The record was cut with stereo grooves. So there was a left channel and a right channel, separate pictures in the left channel and right channel. So there were there were actually simultaneous pictures as he played it. I totally want to hear it. I totally want to hear the eight seconds. That's the picture of you know the gorillas in the mist or whatever. Like I'm, I'm, I really think that the the sorry the OSPs might be more into that music than into Bach. It's interesting. I haven't seen yet. I'm hoping to see it and talk about it in a future episode. Like exactly how these encodings were done and oh. how they explained to the OSPs how what they did and how the information was to be retrieved. I read that on Wikipedia. All right. Do you want to talk about it now? Um, it was actually a lot more complicated than I thought it would be, but the instructions to play it were written or were drawn on the on the record. So you have to play it at a certain rotations per minute in order for it to sound like real music. And they were written in the units of the transition of the hydrogen atom um, in terms of into seconds so you can know how fast to play it which I thought was pretty okay. interesting that's like their fundamental units that they use but yeah they, they do draw it on there and uh, show you how to play it and how fast to play it but for the encoding I can't remember but it was basically a series of vertical lines I think from the hydrogen spectrum uh, no 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 just like on the record vertical lines that you put into a picture somehow Okay, so once again, what I know about the technical aspects of making records is fairly limited. But my understanding is that you don't usually only make two. So there probably are more of these, and probably somebody here on Earth could do the experiment of dumping one of these in an MIT classroom and say, hey kids, you're smart and technologically advanced, and you know all this science that we're assuming people know. What does this say? Oh, give them just what we gave the OSPs yeah. and say, can you make this? I was thinking this? about that, too. Maybe we could put together a test group sometime. and uh... Yeah, ook, ook, I'm, I want to be a test monkey. Because it, it does seem very know, ambiguous, like how they explain what the hydrogen, the wavelength of the hydrogen transition. It's like two circles with lines coming off them, and then the numbers there, like... Uh, I don't know how you're supposed to equate like, that to hydrogen. Do they see the hydrogen atom the way we do? I can't even interpret like a, it. Like it, <laughs> like a nucleus with a circle around it. I, I think that's what they're going for, but it doesn't even look like that. Do they see? Do they think of S-wave orbitals? I doubt it. Yeah, you know the the thing because this is coming to you from a university where we we try and teach people about hydrogen and the thing where you are trying to communicate what's in your head to another human being who has been talking about the same thing as you for the last half hour. It's that's so incredibly hard, difficult. <laughs> it's an ambitious project. 
And I think I'll play devil's advocate in their favor and just say that if you were attempting to lead a project where you're putting something like this together, you could stop yourself every five minutes with these kind of questions. And eventually you just have to say, this is the best we can do right now and go ahead and do it. Because you've only got from March to August. Because you only have six months. So a couple of rules they put down for themselves in terms of choosing the photos is that the photos would actually be photographs, not works of art. Like they wouldn't include paintings or things like that. They would be entirely uh, pictures. So were these already existing images in some archive somewhere and they just went through and leafed through and picked some out? Or did they like go take out cameras and go capture Earth? Combination of the two. So there were a lot of stock photos they had uh, and there was a lot of photos that they went out and took. All right. Um, And what we're going to be talking about, the photos, I don't know if we'll talk about all 118, but we'll talk about what we decide are the most interesting. Wikipedia told me there were 116 images, so... Holy cats. And does one of them involve a person whose last name is Sagan, by any chance? Not that I saw. Oh, that's unusually restrained of a famous person. But we can talk about some personal things Sagan put on. Oh, yeah, that's some good stuff. yeah, because one of the the controversies, Hannah can probably talk more about this, was a few years before Voyager, the Pioneer probes went up, and they had a plaque on them as a this is a human this is what humanity is plaque and it was fairly controversial mm. it had naked people there were naked people in 1970 whatever right but there was a lot of controversy on it and as such they did not put naked people on the voyager golden records they just have silhouettes because they the once bitten twice shy well because the osps you know could be offended by nudity surely it's more that the osps could you know see where our delicate white underbellies are and know where to tickle us to to make us incapable of uh attacking them back well we can all agree that that's a, that's a real issue and this is a thing i think we can discuss in the future is how much of this record constitutes them being traitors to humanity well i think uh, Wait, traitors or traders traitors oh the bad kind treasonous yeah okay tth a tth scale could we give up on the tlas I don't think I can. What's a TLA? It's a three-letter acronym for three-letter acronyms, and it's the worst thing that there could possibly be. Like OSP. They're kind of my favorite things. Oh, God. Uh, OMG. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the two rules they had. One rule was photos, not works of art. The other rule was basically can be categorized as a no-bummer rule. So there would be no shots of war, disease, famine, or anything that no shows... <laughs> okay, I, so I agree. That's a funny uh, way to categorize it. But that, I think that once you've already been accused of tra- traitorousness, not showing the aliens, uh, you know, like how you hurt each other, this may be good. I, 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 see the, I see the point. You're not advertising yourself as a destructive race if you're doing that. And you're also not, again, showing your vulnerable parts. Like if you showed a whole lot of pictures of people with some terrible disease and the aliens were like, hey, I've got an idea. Sorry, the OSPs. I had, hey, I have an idea about how to K-I-L-L a planet. Okay, so that's... That's basically the quick bit about the photos. I have a nitpicking about the photos. Oh, please. This decision to have photos not human-generated works of art really flies in the whole face of my feeling that music is human-generated earth noise. So, like, why would... I I mean, I understand that you're putting it onto a sound medium, like you're putting it onto a record, so maybe you treat sound as something special. But 
I'm, I'm sticking. I'm sticking on this point that they had the sounds of Earth separate from music, and then they had photographs, and they didn't have separate art. You could argue that it contradicts the rule they had in music, where every selection should touch the heart as well as the mind. Dude, photographs can touch the heart. No, that, that's what I'm... Oh, I see what you're saying. You're, you're, you're saying... Okay. I think, so I, I think that photographs can be representative, but also they can be profound, and it is, a, it is an art form. I think that if they found the photograph interesting, then they should say, oh... This isn't educational. This has intrinsic value. And so I should reject it from my... It it obviously has some artistic content, and so I should reject it from the disc. I'm sure they didn't do that. I don't think that's that's what they mean. I think they just mean that we're not going to put the Mona Lisa on. But my feeling is that if Michelangelo or any of the great artists of the Renaissance had access to a camera, and there's some evidence that some of them did actually use camera obscura to make their paintings, they would absolutely have used the lenses and so forth to create art that was a representation of reality. Okay, (laughs) moving on to the next subsection. The next subsection is the Sounds of Earth, which is a sound montage of just almost like Foley sounds from around the earth. Like, here's the sound of a tree blowing in the wind. What I would like to actually do, instead of listing the sort of things that are in the Sounds of Earth, what I'd like to do on a future podcast is to take the Sound of Earth montage, edit it down to individual clips, and play them for you and see if you can guess what they are. I am into that. I like that. Okay, so we're not we're not going to talk about too much what they are right now, and we'll revisit that in a future episode. So, in the last couple things on the record is uh, greetings from the Secretary General of the United Nations to the OSPs, and that's an audio greeting. Secretary General 1977 was Kurt Waldheim. Not an uncontroversial figure in the history of Earth. We can get into that in a future episode. Um, and a written greeting to the OSPs from the U.S. president, who at that time was Jimmy Carter. So in addition to those two greetings, there are also just spoken greetings in over 50 languages. Again, much like the last section, instead of going over what all those languages and greetings were, what we might do in a future episode is take those greetings as an excuse to play the Google Translate game. For those of you who don't know, the Google Translate game is a great game you can play with Google Translate, where you speak a phrase in your native language into Google Translate, have it translate it into a language of your choice and have it speak it back to you. You then flip the languages and try to speak the other language into uh, the app and have the, the goal is to get it to translate it back into the original English thing you said. It's a lot of fun. Highly recommend it. Also surprisingly difficult. Incredibly difficult. Yeah, I can attest to that. And that, I think, is it for the what the contents of the Golden Record are. That's the what we're going to be talking about in future episodes. So I have another general question about it. Mm-hmm. They kept it quiet because they didn't want many people to come along and say, hey, you should have my garage band on it. And so when they announced that they were going to actually launch it into space, were there not a whole lot of people who said, uh, what? You're doing, huh? Wait. Well, so there was a bit of that, and they could only really keep it quiet for so long because they were very diligent about getting copyright clearances for everything. So so they had to basically approach all these recording labels and say, we want to put this on a record to send to space. And eventually, I think that's how it mainly leaked out. Because record executives have... uh... Well, they needed the record executives to cut the record. So originally, they had a deal with RCA Victor to do it. And 
Then they realized RCA Victor only held the copyright to one of the tracks, whereas CBS Records held license for like almost half of them. So they switched over to uh, CBS Records to do the mastering. So there's only, there was only so long they could keep it quiet, and eventually it did come out. And I'm sure they were then approached by people who were offering help. Well, I would have offered. But again, most of my information is from Murmurs of Earth and their take. So if you want hot takes from the other side, we'll have to do some more research on that. Yeah, I should open a 1977 newspaper, maybe. So speaking of copyright, I read on Wikipedia that Carl Sagan wanted the Beatles' Here Comes the Sun on the record, but the record company, EMI, that held the rights to it didn't let him put it on. They declined his suggestion to put it on the record. And I just think that's so bizarre. Why would you not want one of your tracks into space? Do you think they're going to hunt down the Beatles or something if they find it? Like, this is trash. Let's go destroy them. I don't... There is a history of people listening to Beatles music and being driven insane. That's not true. I don't think that's what they were worried about. No. But I think what they were worried about was not being able to collect the royalties from the OSPs who would reproduce the Beatles albums out there in deep space and no EAA record executives would be getting their cut. Ah, I totally understand that in that case. And and they were trying to, you know, start a real conversation with a different civilization. They didn't want the reply to this to just be, hey, can you send more Beatles? Which totally would be the case. Yeah, good point. We've had enough of this Bach. We need more Beatles tracks. Yeah, enough with the Bach Earth. That's not true. It wasn't enough Bach. You can have three tracks and it's not enough Bach. So... Last few things. I've got some basic sort of tech specs about the Golden Record. Hannah mentioned this earlier. It was um, cut at a certain revolution rate, and they, they cut it at 16 two-thirds RPM, which is half the rate of a usual 33 and a third RPM LP. And they did that as a trade-off between resolution in the information and how much music and pictures they could put on. So according to the book, Switching down to 16 and two-thirds RPM actually tripled the amount of time available for music. The gold-coated copper disc, the actual golden record, was placed in an aluminum sleeve to protect it from micrometeor impacts because uh, it was basically mounted almost to the outside of Voyager. Oh, and on top of that sleeve, didn't they have, or maybe it was within the sleeve, they had an ultra-pure sample of uranium-238 so that some OSPs that found it in the future could date it by how much had decayed in that time because it has a half-life of about four and a half billion years. They had the, they had the, the record in the aluminum sleeve. They did a sort of calculation that said the aluminum would protect the record from anything five micrograms and smaller. So anything above five micrograms for a micrometeorite uh, could conceivably get in. And they worked out that in the first light year of travel, there'd be about 2% damage to the outside disk. The side of the disk facing into the Voyager would be pristine. There would be very little chance of that being damaged. So which side did they put in? Oh, I read that. Was it, was it pictures or was it music? I think it was the picture side, but I will change this in post if I'm wrong. I'm curious about the thing of uh, slowing it down, only improving it a certain amount and also affecting the resolution because it implies that uh, you can't using gold didn't gain them anything intrinsically uh, that vinyl couldn't offer. Well, the gold was considered more um, resilient. I would have thought that you could carve gold more finely than you could carve vinyl. Oh, I see. Interesting. But maybe since they were doing it at EMI or wherever, or C- 
BS. They didn't have a gold record cutting machine, and so they had to use uh, vinyl technology for the cutting. Yeah, I think they used the standard system to make the master that they stamped the records out of. That's why you start earlier than March, boys and girls. That's a good point. Thank you. The record is 0.05 inches thick, 1.3 millimeters. It weighed one and a quarter pounds, about half a kilo. They included the cartridge and needle, which I thought was considerate. Yes, that was something I was also wondering about. And they have an image on the outside of how to place the record in regards to the needle in order to make it play. That's good, as long as the OSPs have an optical system for experiencing the outside world. And and again, you can stop yourself every five minutes thinking about what the OSPs are like, but eventually you just gotta... Eventually you're just making it for yourself. Okay, well, thank you for that. That leads to this quote from Murmurs of Earth co-author Timothy Ferris, which I'm going to read in full, where he says, We don't know whether human music will mean anything to non-human intelligences on other planets, but any creature who comes across Voyager and recognizes the record as an artifact can realize that it was dispatched with no hope of return. That gesture may speak more clearly than music. The record says, however primitive we seem, however crude this spacecraft, we knew enough to envision ourselves citizens of the cosmos. It says, however small we were, something in us was large enough to want to reach out to discoverers unknown in times when we shall have perished or have changed beyond recognition. It says, whoever and whatever you are, we too once lived in this house of stars and we thought of you. But it doesn't actually say that on it. On? On the, on the spacecraft. No, it says that. That's, that's, in your mind, it says that. that yeah, that's, that's what they hope the OSPs would take away from it, even I if see. they couldn't read it, even if they couldn't get all the information off of it. We tried. It was, yeah. On the other hand, if they're copper-eating, gold-allergic life form, it's like a really cruel joke. I think gold-eating copper-allergic, because uh, it looks like a solid gold thing. Excellent point. Unless Excellent they point. can smell the copper. Mm. Well, you shouldn't just eat things off spacecrafts you find out in the cosmos anyway. I think that's a pretty good rule. That's a we good don't lesson. know who's living out there. We don't know what hardships they've seen. Maybe they only survive on uh, probes from distant civilizations. <laughs> you got to said more, that's they're a, hungry. That's a specialized uh, ecological niche there. They must only have to eat every billion years. Think of reptiles. They only eat every whatever it is, three months. I would like to end this. <laughs> really? Why? With, with, with two more quotes that were dissenting views. And the first was by uh, Sir Martin Ryle, a Nobel laureate, won the Nobel Prize for pioneering methods in radio astronomy interferometry. Quoting from Murmurs of Earth, quote, he wrote with great anxiety that he felt it was very hazardous to reveal our existence and location to the galaxy. For all we know, any creatures out there were malevolent or hungry, and once they knew of us, they might come to attack or eat us. He strongly recommended that no messages of this sort be sent again, and even asked the executive committee of the International Astronomical Union to approve a resolution condemning such messages. Yeah, that that seems so extreme. It does. And a second quote, and this was a quote made in reference to the pioneer plaque that showed uh, the two naked people. Uh, And this is a quote by a comic artist named Jack Kirby, who said, I see no wisdom in the eagerness to be found and approached by any intelligence with the ability to accomplish it from any sector of space. In the meetings between discoverers and discoverees, history has always given the advantage to the finders. And in response to that, he drew a picture of basically Superman and a super lady 
flying out of the earth as a means to uh, warn people off. I'm not sure about the Superman and Super Lady thing. It is true about the imbalance of risk. We don't know the worst case scenario, and so we can't sort of estimate what the risk is for sending our data out to space. We do know that the chances of it being found are very, very slim, but if there's infinite risk, then it doesn't matter how small the uh, probability is. It's still infinite. That's a good point. I think these people, I don't know, I don't think there's that much need for concern. It's a very small thing in a very large universe. I think it's not going to get that far before someone finds it, and if I don't think it would be that hard to find Earth without it. Exactly. We've been broadcasting for ages. Yeah. yeah we're, we, we've moved on to streaming media, and uh, that has outpaced the Voyager probe. So they need to just not worry about it. We're already kind of we're already Either we're already doomed, or we're already making buddies with the... Or they're already here. Oh, excellent point. Looking for that Beatles. <laughs> No, they don't know about the Beatles. They had that's to come, how you can no, recognize them. No, they had them. to come here and get it because we didn't send it to them. But they know about Chuck Berry. So Spoiler. If so if you find somebody who knows about Chuck Berry but not the Beatles, they're an alien. It's oh, a good tell. Uh, that's all I've got. Great, thanks. I've enjoyed chatting with you, Hannah and Mike. Me too. Thanks for all these facts. And thank you for listening to Earth's Mixtape. Our plan is to record a bunch of episodes and get a good stockpile going before we start releasing them. But once we do, we'll be releasing uh, new episodes every two weeks. Thank you. Thank you. May the force be with you. Thanks for listening to Earth's Mixtape. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes, and maybe we will read your name on a future episode. Reviews will help people find out about the podcast, and maybe tell your friends about us. Did we make a mistake or an omission? Heck yeah, we did. Let us know all about it on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Earth's Mixtape. Or email us at earthsmixtape at gmail.com. Earth's Mixtape is produced at St. Mary's University in beautiful Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada.